You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. It's my pleasure again to welcome you. If you weren't around at the start, my name is Peter. Um, It is a great pleasure to welcome you to York City Church, particularly if this is your first time with us, whether you're a guest or a visitor. If you perhaps this morning wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you are most welcome with us today. Um, If York City Church is your home and you've been around any time in the past 60-odd days, you will know that we're about two-thirds of the way through um, 100 days of prayer. Um, It's been a particularly poignant season for us of God again revealing himself to us, schooling us in his ways again and again. It was wonderful last week to hear so many um, testimonies of how good God has been to people over and over again during this season and longer. Good news for all of you who are really, really enjoying the season of prayer is that this week we're doing 24-7 prayer. Um, So from midnight to night, tomorrow morning, Maria Knight's going to be praying. Um, All the way through till midnight on Sunday next week, we're going to be praying every hour of the day. These slots are filling up fast. Um, So far, Linda um, has got a number of slots. Maria has got the late slots, and so is Laura Green. So if you are a night owl, I imagine sign up for the late ones. They will go fast. I'll be in bed at seven-ish. So there will be this form somewhere around at the end of the meeting. If you'd like to sign up, um, you can also sign up online. I'll point you in that direction. For me, I've had a number of reflections during this um, season of prayer. Perhaps one of the key things that God has convicted me of once again is that prayer is God's thing just as much, if not more, than it is our thing. That it is so easy to slip back into the ways of my prayer life, uh, my action, my words. If only I prayed that bit more, my life would be better. If I only did it a little bit better, if only I could hint and tip my way into a super-duper prayer life. But instead, it is him who draws us into his words. It's him who draws us into dialogue with him. And it is through him and through his intercession on our behalf that we find our home in prayer. We're drawn into something that God has already begun and we'd get to participate in that. How beautiful is that, brothers and sisters? Um, Let me get my slides up. All right. (laughs) That wasn't that funny. I mean, it's it's always worrying when you get a laugh early on in a sermon because then you think that you're some sort of comedian for the rest of it. So, so, yeah, so so I do really love what God has been doing with us um, in this season. So do sign up next week, but do persevere till the end. Do keep going. This isn't just a 100-day thing. This continues, um, and we get to grow in that. So one of the benefits of being an occasional preacher in York City Church is you get a number of months to prepare. So for the last few months, I've been planning a really cool sermon about the power of prayer and how when we pray, we enter into dialogue with God and we participate in God's acts of speech in creation and we participate in Jesus, the word who became flesh and spoke and these amazing things happened where his kingdom came near, new creation broke out and therefore don't look upon your prayer life as personal piety but participation by the means of the things of which God is doing to bring the new age into the present reality. But whilst 
put in the proverbial pen to paper, God has left me in a, quite a different direction. And in fact, I, I felt God quite clearly saying to me, you do not know how to pray as you ought. I was like, so after all this really good fruitful season, you want me to stand up and say, you do not know how to pray as you ought. Yeah, cheers. So, this is no harsh rebuke, though, and we'll see in a few moments' time that this phrase is used in one of the most grace-filled passages of Scripture in the whole of the Bible. But before we get there, I'm sure none of us have been left unaffected by recent events but in the invasion in Ukraine and the devastating effects of war. Over two million people displaced and dispersed, lives changed forever, children's hospitals just this week being bombed, people fleeing, being executed, numbers that are dead beyond the limits of what I can imagine. To be honest, I have no idea how I feel about it all. There's just, just this ongoing background thing of sadness, anger, confusion, helplessness. I don't know how I feel, but it's always there. And this is on the back of a pandemic of difficulty, of loss of life again and again, on the rising costs of living in the present, of increasing numbers in our country entering poverty. And on a personal level, grief, sickness, family pain, loss, exhaustion. But yet it's with that backdrop that God says to us, and he says to me, that you do not know how to pray as you ought. This is a part of scripture in Romans 8, 28, verse uh, eight, Romans 8, verse 26, it says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for you do not know how to pray as we ought, but the very Spirit intercedes with sighs, which is translated elsewhere as groans, too deeps for words. So rather than this being a rebuke of you don't know how to pray as you, as you should, this is pointing out, not pointing out that we're getting this whole prayer thing wrong, This is God being again kind and gracious, meeting us in our weakness. It's a beautiful passage of scripture once more and it just shows how God treats people again. God meets us in our weakness and in the spirit lifts us, draws us back to him. In some ways, it's a summary of the gospel in a verse. When we were weak, God was strong and brought us near. When we were far off, he found us. When we were lost, he found us. And to grasp the depths of this verse, we need to place it in the context of the rest of Romans um, 8. And we're going to do that by reading Romans 8, verses 18 to, 18 to 28. So I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing at the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. In hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we, will wait, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. So it's a beautiful passage of Scripture, but there's a whole load of groaning in it. And we need to ask the question is, what is all this groaning about? Now, for those of you who attended the prayer meetings this week, James Bailey absolutely stole my thunder. But God has already got me to ditch one sermon, and I'm not letting James do the same. So here we go again for those of you who, who missed. This will be your first time. It's all my work. For those of you who have heard it already, um, we can share credit. So, so for the first groaning that we come across in Romans 8 is that the whole of creation is groaning in labor pains. Second, we ourselves, defined as those with the first fruits of the Spirit, the community of God or the saints, as Paul later refers in Romans 8, we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And then finally, the Spirit who intercedes with groans too deep for words. And all of these groans are placed within the story of a present suffering and a future glory. A present suffering and a future glory. The groaning of creation is placed within the the story of suffering of a bondage and a waiting to be liberated. It's like the stories of the slaves who are set free um, from Egypt. We too are groaning inwardly as we find bondage to these bodies as we too await for a glorious redemption of these. And from that place of weakness, we find the Spirit comes to inspire our Godward groans and some, that are somehow according to and enter into the will of God. But what you might notice about all the groanings in Romans 8 is they're not just grumblings of how things are bad at this moment. They lean forward with expectation of a release that will come one day. Karl Barth describes the groaning in Romans 8 as the perfect harmony between lament and hope. This cry of deep, excruciating pain and agonizing grief that coexists with expectation and joy at what is to come. The harmony that means the pain you are suffering right now does not diminish the hope of a glorious future, but neither does that future magnificence and resplendent day eliminate nor invalidate the pain that you feel in this present day. This phrase of groaning being the perfect harmony between lament and hope has lived with me since reading it a couple of weeks ago. Every so often I've found in my walk with God there's been a scripture or an interpretation of scripture or I've read something that has just awoken me. There's this been this clash of my present experience or my experience that I've had meets some sort of reality in God. And this is the way he calls us to trust him. As I've experienced disappointment, grief, loss, when things have just been downright awful, sometimes even cruel, sometimes just seeing this relentless bad news. How can you feel all that yet remain confident in God? How do you remain buoyant in God when the waves of pain and despair crash all around you? How does your hope not get dimmed by the darkness? It's a question that everyone will have to answer at some point. Even now with the atrocities in Ukraine, 
the atrocities around countries all around the world? How do we live with such pain, sadness, difficulty, yet hope there is a new day to come? That this thing that's happening now is not the final say. As Romans 8 says, this is the world in which we live. What we're witnessing in the news right now should be surprisingly unsurprising. This is the place in which we dwell right now. How can we feel pain and anger and upset, yet also be certain of a future in God, a glorious day when he will set all things right. As a society, and particularly as Western culture, I feel like we've been robbed of the, of the power of both hope and lament. Not that we can necessarily become proficient at them, because as we say, we don't pray as we ought, but in the bid to do away with pain, we've numbed the pain in different ways. We've numbed also the hope of a future. And in a bid to do with a away with a delayed gratification that we have no control over when it will arrive, we've done away with our ability to view these moments in the view of that future day. We've flattened lament in my right to be complained and annoyed because I have been wronged. And we've flattened hope into the work of empty statements of it will all be okay in the end. It will work out for the best. But scripture paints an entirely different view of groaning and this coexistence between lament and hope. And in fact, there's a whole book in the Bible that's exclusively dedicated to lament and unimaginatively it's called Lamentations. And the writer of this book has good, good reason to lament. He's witnessed his nation invaded, robbed, plundered, survivors captured and placed into slavery. He describes the desolation of the ones who once ate delicacies in the street. They once ate delicacies in the street, now find themselves in desolation. And he sits around and there's corpses that lie in piled ashy heaps. He sits in the midst of that. He sits down and he says this, I'm the one who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Against me alone he turns his hand again and again all day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away and broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me sit in darkness like the dead of long ago. But somewhere in the middle of that outpouring of lament, it's like this slight bit of sunshine pierces the dark clouds. And he says this, but I call this to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. There's this coexistence between deep despair and pain at the present reality, this feeling of punishment from God being cut off from him. Yet there's hope. His circumstances, where he sits in his city, offer no reason for hope. Imagine sitting in the middle of streets and seeing the destruction all around, men, women and children killed, the city destroyed, and for many this morning around the world that will be their reality. 
For the author of Lamentations, though, while his circumstances offer no reason for hope, the entire basis for his hope is based on God's reputation for loving kindness. Therefore, I will hope in him. Elsewhere in the scriptures, we see approximately one-third of the psalms are designated as psalms of lament or contain lament. My personal favorite is Psalm 77. And that's just due to the sheer audacity of what the psalmist says. He says this, Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love ceased forever? Are his promises an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his compassion? And I say, it's my grief that the right hand of the Lord Most High has changed. Can we really say that to God? Other Bible translations give this real visual nuance to that final verse. He said, one says this, has his right hand, I said, lost its grasp? Does it hang powerless, the arm of the, the one most high? Eugene Peterson in his message translates it like this, has the Lord retired just as I needed him? Can you really say that to God? One of my favorite authors describes it as the unutterable prayer, which is super interesting considering the groans of the spirit in Romans 8 is also can be translated as unutterable groans. But yet somehow, somewhere in the midst of Psalm 77, the psalmist leaps from the apex of despair and despondency to say this, I will call to mind the deeds of the Lord. I'll remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is so great as our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have displayed with might your might amongst the people. And here's a beautiful, beautiful verse. With your strong arm, after just describing his arm as weak, with your strong arm, you redeemed your people the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. Lament and hope again, harmonious in a coexistence, a deep cry of excruciating grief and isolation and to an imaginative acknowledgement of the premacy of God. He is great. His arm is strong. And if you're still not convinced, then how about Jesus on the cross, quote Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 goes on and says, Why are you so far from helping me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night and find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. In, your ans- in you our ancestors trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Because they trusted I will trust because you have shown your faithfulness from generation to generation. I will trust in you. In this deep situation of pain and anguish, I will look and count upon your reputation for faithfulness. I will look to you and say that you are great. I will call to mind regularly the goodness of God. I will remind myself of that. And as I say, I feel like we've been robbed of the power of both hope and lament. But fortunately for us, society's created some really handy alternatives to groaning. 
The first really handy alternative to groaning is the stoic response, which is akin to a stiff upper lip. The stoic position would consider that your emotions, um, the world you inhabit, are created by your thoughts and your emotions and how you feel about things. And therefore, if you can conquer pain and grief, if you can overcome it, then you're guaranteed to live a better and more free and joyous existence. And to achieve this, the Stoic often uses self-control and uh, fortitude as a means to come off, come over what might to overcome what might be classed as negative or destructive emotions. Things like sorrow, anguish, pain, grief. This is very akin to the, the British tradition of a stiff upper lift. Just don't show your feelings. In fact, don't try to feel your feelings. Just bottle it up, deny anything is going on, and certainly everything will work out okay. All we have to do is move past as quickly as possible this really difficult situation. Don't show weakness, and it will be okay. At the very best, this alternative is merely storing up a whole heap of problems that will explode at a later date. And I've experienced it and I've seen it so many times. At its very worst though, it's an idolatrous response that denies, that believes the suffering of this world can be overcome by you and I just handling our feelings a bit better. It denies the need of Jesus to defeat death and suffering and put self in the place of saviour. Maybe you don't do that. Maybe you do this instead. You hide away. Handy alternative to groaning number two is just simply to hide. Pain, stress, conflict comes and you go missing from community. You stop going to small group. You stop coming to church. You don't bother with prayer. You hide away from God in in an attempt to hide away from the pain. You give up with a relationship with God because you don't have to be honest about truly how you feel. You hide away from friendship and community so you don't have to answer the questions of how you're really doing. As God says to Jeremiah, hiding from him is futile. Can man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? Are you a hider when it comes to pain? I certainly have been. Do you just hide yourself away? I understand that. I get it. It's easier. You don't have to go to the difficult places, but you also end up hiding from the only source of help, the only one that helps you in your weakness. The psalmist says, I look to the hills and where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the creator of heavens and earth, the one who will not let your foot slip. He will not sleep. Indeed, the one who looks over Israel will not slumber and sleep. When my second born was in hospital after he was born, That's basically the only prayer I prayed for months. I looked to the hills. Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord Most High, the creator of heavens and earth. If you're a hider this morning, God says to you, you don't need to hide. You're hidden in him. Colossians says you have died and you are hidden with Christ in God. Your safe space becomes him, not away from him. Your God hides you near, not far away. Third alternative is just numbing away the pain, perhaps the most common. That few cans of beer, that bottle of wine just to take the edge off the day, nothing too serious that people might think that you have a problem. What about spending loads of money to comfort the pain, buying things? How about exercise? How about going to the gym? Anyone else just numb pain by picking up heavy things and putting them back down repeatedly? It's weird, right? 
You can also numb the pain in much more pious ways, though. Fill in your calendar so it looks so, so full that you don't have to um, cope with anything. You work super hard. They, I even say that you serve constantly. You're always on a road to see. You never have to get a chance to stop and to feel. But I truly believe that in numbing the pain and denying our scriptural um, encouragement to lament, to enter into lament and to, to, to um, embrace the difficult words and the difficult pain, we're also denying and numbing our opportunity to live in hope. When we replace our lament with a numbing rather than the painful, liberating move to deep faith, to deep trust in God, to fully reckon with the situation that is at hand, your circumstances that are right before you, to fully go there and to trust in God, to put ourselves in a situation where we don't really trust. I feel like God would call us to a place where put your trust in him, that the one put yourself in a position where if he doesn't come through for you, then you have nothing. There's no other solution to suffering, brothers and sisters, than the one who suffered and rose again. To count upon his reputation for goodness again, that's deep liberating faith and the cost of deliverance. And when we as a community promote the world's alternatives to groaning, when we deny people the use of scriptural language of lament, what it does is it drives people towards guilt, drives people towards when something bad is happening, then I must be doing something wrong because I was promised that when I became a Christian, everything would be okay. It leads to moral judgments of who is at fault when right now, Romans 8 says this is the status of creation. It groans in weights in anticipation for a day when it'll be set free. It's surprisingly unsurprising when difficult things come. Here's a bit of pastoral advice for you. When you're around people that are suffering, don't be that person that jumps to a solution. Well, if you did this, it would get better. Don't be that person that jumps to, oh, well, this worked really well for me. Be the person that joins with them in words of lament that this is difficult, this is painful and anguish and full of anguish, and then recount together the reputation of God. Another handy alternative to groaning is hopelessness, hopelessness of criticism and complaint. So we can shut down the pain of feeling um, difficulty, and we can we can numb it. We can avoid it, um, but we can also just become hopeless. So there's a way of turning a Godward lament and turn it into an assassination of a person, of a community, of an organization, of a workplace, of a thing. You become constantly critical, constantly bitter because of the pain that you're suffering elsewhere in life gets released in a different way. And often I don't think that that is a deliberate act. I think that deep, excruciating pain becomes expressed in different areas. But I encourage you, don't let your, let your, your Godward laments turn into bitterness, criticalness, and cynicism. Because the object of a Godward lament becomes the reason for your hope. 
that meant to God that this is not right, that this is hurting, that this God looks like you're acting in a different way, leads us down the road to God being the only one who can put it right. No man or woman or organization can take on that role for you. Only God can put an end to this pain you feel. When the pain of death is extinguished on that final day, only God is faithful to every word he has ever, spoke, ever spoken. Only God will not deny his promises. Only God can truly sympathize with you where you're at. When you put that onto another person, you end up being perpetually hurt over and over again, let down and disappointed, and you wallow in despair and bitterness for all your days. And my final alternative to groaning that I've practiced, there's probably many more, And my final alternative is cheap hope. And this is the idea that a future absent of suffering can be obtained with just incrementally better decisions. If only we did things a little bit more like this. If only we voted for this person. If only we decided this person was in power. If only everyone was that little bit kinder, then suffering would always be on the decrease and joy would always be on the increase. As we've said, Romans 8 describes creation as in bondage to the old way and cries out in labor pains, waiting its liberation. The cheap alternative to hope that society sells us sells you the promise that if you make slightly better life choices, if you do things in a slightly different way, it will be onwards and upwards, be more and more successful, more and more free, more and more pain-free, more and more joyous until the day you die. I don't see a direct promise of that in Scripture. I see plenty of promises of he will never leave you or forsake you. I see plenty of promises that he will comfort you in your time of need. I see plenty of promises that on that final day he will set all things right. We've been tricked into thinking that the coming kingdom of God, where there will be no suffering and no more tears, no more pain, no more injustice, will come through anything but the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you think that the place that it's all heading is anything less than the glorious renewal of all things, where we stand free before him and we will be like him and you'll be, you'll be clothed in his righteousness, you will stand before him and you will... Uh, take on resurrection just like him, this glorious renewal of all things. If your mind is set on just a little bit better tomorrow, I encourage you to lift your eyes to him. New creation is not just going to be a place where we're just that little bit kinder to one another, where we just use that little bit less plastic, where we just do this and this. I was sat at the rugby the other night and I was thirsty. I bought a bottle of Diet Coke and they poured it into a paper cup to be saving the environment. And it started leaking. And I just felt God say to me, that it's not just gonna, new creation doesn't just come through switching, making better choices, make, putting your drinks in paper cups and plastic. Not that that is not something we should do, but that's not the means for new creation. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the one who gave it all. We don't cheapen that day by just making better choices. That's not to say we shouldn't be kinder to one another. We shouldn't make better choices with recycling. I've literally spent weeks teaching students renewable processes. But that's not going to be the means by which new creation, and I'll I'll hazard a guess, is not going to be the means that tomorrow is easier for you either. We bound in old creation 
We are waiting the day for the liberation of all of this. So, anyway, go off on one there. Dangers. Groaning is also a dangerous uh, habit to form because entering into a Godward lament, fully embracing the present reality of suffering and pain and putting your trust in God is dangerous because it entertains the possibility that what happens if God doesn't come through for us. I think that to be truly enter into full lament, you have to wrestle with the possibility that this won't be okay. And in order to truly entertain a future hope, you have to wrestle with the fact that this might not be, your life might not be on the trajectory of getting incrementally better. Hidden in this type of groaning is, the cons- is considerate, considering the possibility, just like the psalmist, that God is no longer coming to our aid. Has he retired in the day that we need him? It's awaking a different kind of relationship with a mysterious other, one who is outside our control, one who is free and has power to trans anything handy that we might want. True groaning enters into relationship with that holy, free God, a holy, free, holy other God who's not just a little bit better and kinder than I am. He is in control. And that's glorious, brothers and sisters, that he's not just like me, a little bit better. He is in control, and that's the danger of groaning. You have to humble yourself. You have to let your pride and your ego die. You get to have to enter into a repentant faith where he is Lord and you are not. You have to give up on the world's handy alternatives to coping. He, and he might not act like you and I, but boy, that is a good thing, Right? that you can count on his faithfulness from generation to generation, that you can count on his loving kindness from generation to generation, you can count on his grace and his forgiveness, that you can count on him being true to everything he has ever said he is. You can count on him saying that he will come and set all things right. And there we enter the power of groaning as well. No longer is self Lord, but Jesus Christ is Lord. Your groaning does not become void of meaning or power. From a scriptural perspective, it's not like groaning and lament and cries of pain have no outcome. It's the start of Exodus we see Israel groaning under the burden of slavery and under persecution in Egypt. And God says this, I've heard the groanings of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are holding as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the Israelites, I am the Lord, I will free you. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. God hears the groans of his people and he acted. Now God did now do I think God forgot the promises he made to the forefathers? No. But the action of Israel's groans presented to us in this way in Exodus seems to cause God to act. In Jesus we see similar. Jesus, through the Gospels, dealt with many moments of pain and suffering, healing of blind people, lepers, deep poverty, and in the case of Lazarus and Jairus' daughter, then dealing with dead people. In those narratives, it's the needy person or the family of the dead person who come and summon Jesus into their lives and into their pain and into their suffering. It's often them who seems to initiate the interaction. The blind Bartimaeus in the Gospel of Luke, also in Mark, cries out with a very condensed prayer of lament and hope. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops and he says, what can I do for you? Lord, I want to see. 
is Bartimaeus' reply. And Jesus says to him, receive your light. And very primitively, we can at least ask the question that would that have happened if Bartimaeus had, had just practiced the alternatives of the world? So have just said, no, I'm actually okay. Nope, all fine here. I've actually just bought a new iPhone 13 and it's really keeping me busy. I truly, truly deep down believe with all my being that God takes all initiatives, that his word is always first and every word I ever speak is only response to him. But Karl Barth observes this, that prayer causes, things to, to, causes God to do things that he would otherwise not do. He says that people in great distress pray this way, whereas people in comfort might think it is superstitious and foolish. For me, there's something about the combination of the depths of pain, of suffering and need, the groaning uh, uh, in, in um, anguish, and the assumption that God is both powerful enough and gracious enough to intervene, that si- time and time again, through Scripture, results in the action of God. God intervenes in his gracious way. Now, do I think that in some way, in praying like this way, we've wrestled control from God? Absolutely never. In fact, I think Romans 8 can make a really good argument that our groaning is actually inspired by the Spirit for us to participate in the will of God. I desperately want us to be a people that rejects the numbings of the world and hand the alternatives to groaning, to count the true cross to faithful belief in him, rather than being a people who numb away the pain and pray half-hearted prayers out of piety. I want us to trust God is who he says he will be and put ourselves in a position in our prayers, in our groanings, in our sufferings that if he does not come through, then what hope do I have? Our task, brothers and sisters, is to sound the groan on full volume. If it were easier or less costly than that, we would not be in a situation of birth pangs. It would be peaceful and serene. But we get to trust on him and that final day that I'll be found in him. That is the power of groaning. We get to enter into his hopeful future. We get to believe and trust him. Why don't we stand together? We're going to come to the table. Paul's going to lead us in um, a song. Um, And whilst he sings, we're going to participate in both singing, but we're going to come to the table this clash again of deep suffering, a body broken, blood shed, but yet the hope of a resurrection that is to come. We do this meal until the day he returns, brothers and sisters. We get to remind ourselves that now, in the midst of the chaos in the world, in the midst of, again, deep injustice, in the midst of your personal pain and suffering, that there's one who draws us forward. Why don't you pray as you come? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me.